Um, and so this morning, we're going to be picking up right where we left off last week. I mentioned last week that it was a two-part message. And um, so if you missed last week, you're going to need to go back and get that and kind of pair it together with this one. They, are, um, they go together. There's a little bit of overlap, but um, you're going to need to go back and do that. Um, and as I mentioned last week uh, regarding Jesus' sermon that Matthew has recorded here, it's a... It's an, kind of like an example of the preaching that Jesus did, the teaching that Jesus did during the course of his three-year ministry. There were parables, of course, along the way. But when Jesus came preaching and he preached the gospel of the kingdom, I think that this recording that Matthew has left for us here is an example of what that message would be like. And so I want to kind of make that case for us again uh, because contextually, this message that Jesus preaches um, is, is significant for understanding the, the end of his sermon, his teaching, which is where we're at currently in this sermon. So just notice briefly as we kind of do a little bit of a review here of making the case that this teaching that Jesus did, the preaching that Jesus did, was indeed the gospel. He says there, he said in 4.17, Matthew records that from the time that Jesus began to preach and say, so this is following his, his baptism of repentance, he comes out as John the Baptist had, and he's, he's preaching here, repent, he says, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so it seems without question that Jesus' preaching, teaching ministry demanded a repentance of sin against God on the part of those who were listening to his preaching and who were thus desiring to enter into his kingdom. There's a need for repentance because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so it perhaps seemed uh, significant to me to perhaps again reconnect ourselves with the definition of repentance because I'm going to show you here a little bit later how we in our more modern culture have adapted that definition to fit our gospel. So I'm going to do a little, I'm going to do, did I, I never did this. Let me do this first and go up here and expand that screen. Will that work? Maybe not. Okay. So I'm going to come over here like this and I'm dropping in now from my logos. This is low and NIDA. Can y'all see this? Is this large enough? If not, I'm sorry. It's the best I can do. Okay. So this is out of um, a Greek English lexicon. And so here you have You've got uh, metanoeo and metanoia. This is just the Greek word that is used for repent or repentance, okay? And so this is just, a, a lexicon is like a dictionary, okay? So it says, just notice, to change one's way of life. This is how it starts out. So when you hear the call, the preaching of repentance, the semantical meaning is inherently the idea of the change of life. To change one's way of life as the result of a complete change of thought and attitude with regard to sin and righteousness. So there's a change of thought and attitude with regard to our sin against God, hence the need for repentance and walking from that and walking with Jesus. Oh, and also of righteousness, the, the fact that we need to possess a righteousness that we don't possess. We need the very righteousness of God imputed to us. So it says to repent, to change one's way, repentance. And you see this little, this little marker right here? This drops us in to um, something I want to show you here. Ready? 
I just do that. There we go. It says, though it would be possible to classify metanoeo and metanoia in domain 30, in other words, another place within this lexicon, under uh, more of a, a, a word that's defined just as think to think, it says the focal semantic nature of these terms is clearly behavioral rather than intellectual. Now, for those of you who, are, who aren't really... Uh, in the kind of the underbelly of the discussion with regard to metanoia, most people today will say that metanoia, repentance, is exclusively a change of mind. I'll say, oh, well, metanoia is just a change of mind. And they weave in a, a, a shred of that truth, of this truth, to the exclusion of what the embodiment of this really is, which is the change of life as a result of the change of thinking, the result of the change of mind and the attitude that leads to the changed life. And so then he gives us a couple of examples here from Mark 6, 12 and Romans 2, 4. But notice it says, though in English, a focal component of repent is the sorrow or contrition that a person experiences because of sin. Isn't that good? There's a recognition in repentance that we have sinned against the holiness of God, and we feel it. It's not just a mental ascent. It's not just a mental exercise. We feel it deep within our soul. The emphasis of metanoeo and metanoia seem to be more specifically the total change, both in thought and behavior, with respect to how one should both think and act. Whether the focus is upon attitude or behavior varies somewhat in different contexts. In other words, you may find metanoia in different contexts, and it may seem to edge a little bit more in this context dealing with attitude or this one with behavior, but that's kind of superfluous. You just let the context give you the, 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 the meaning for it in that case. But the focal component of this is the change of one's life. Repentance. Isn't that good? Is that helpful? So when Jesus came, what, preaching? Let me see if I can, I think I just messed that up. Let's go back here. What does this do for me? There we go. So when Jesus came preaching, repent. The locals who were there, hooves on the ground listening, they weren't squirmish over what the idea and the meaning of repentance was. They knew exactly what Jesus was calling them to, which was not just a change of thinking about who he was, but a change of life, of turning from something and following him and living differently as a result of repentance. Again, isn't that good? This is very informative. It instructs us. We need to understand that when someone repents, they are truly repenting of sin against a holy God and truly they see their need for his righteousness. It changes the way one's life is lived and that for the good. So again, when Jesus called people to, who, who were wanting to have entrance into his kingdom, he called for repentance. A complete change of thought an attitude with regard to sin and righteousness that will always, always result in the change of one's way of life. Because he who began that good work in you might perfect it 
until the day of Christ Jesus. No, you're supposed to say, wait, pastor, you just misquoted that passage. We'll perfect it. We walk around and we live as if it says might. It might perfect it. What do you mean? Are you capable of staying the hand of God when he opens your spiritually blind eyes and he indwells you with his Holy Spirit and he gives you a new heart in accordance with the new covenant? Can you then stay the hand of God who said he will perfect it in his children? No, you see, he has guaranteed the transformation of his children because he gave his children a new heart and from that heart they now want to be pleasing to him and to love him. Kind of like God didn't leave those covenants that he established, let's say the Abrahamic covenant. He didn't leave that resting on the shoulders of men. He made a unilateral covenant where he swore by himself that he would accomplish what he promised Abraham. And he does that which he promises. He who began a good work will perfect it. And this call to repentance... It's consistently been the call of, of the apostolic preaching uh, that we see throughout the epistles. Let me just show you a couple of examples of this from Peter's preaching at the very beginning following Pentecost in Acts 2, 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men, brothers, what should we do? Peter said to them, repent. And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And later in Acts 17, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now commanding men that everyone everywhere should repent. Metanoia. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he determined, having furnished proof by, to all by raising him from the dead. Now, what we have seen thus far in Matthew's gospel, uh, as Jesus began his public ministry, is this call of his to repentance and then Matthew, in recording Jesus' preaching of the Sermon on the Mount, is going to show us how he associates that call of repentance with what is also referred and known as the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom. So when we see, in, let's say in Matthew seven fourteen, that from that time Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So this is seven. Uh, 4.17, when we just move ahead a little bit to here to 4.23, notice Jesus was going throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and preaching. Teaching and preaching. So he's, he begins preaching repentance. Why? The kingdom of heaven is here. He's going throughout all Galilee teaching and preaching in their synagogues the gospel of the kingdom. So it would seem to me that in the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom, repentance is the cornerstone of that which is being mentioned. Is there's a need for repentance if you want to enter into the kingdom. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Here's how you get into the kingdom. 
begins with repentance. And it says at the end of this, and he's healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. So the gospel of Jesus was a call to repentance. And repentance, as we know, when genuine results in a complete change of thought and attitude with regard to sin and righteousness that always results in the life change. And then we see that Jesus, in order to authenticate or validate this amazing message that he is bringing of this kingdom and how you make entrance into this kingdom starts healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people demonstrating that he's doing things that only God can do listen to him notice verse 24 and the news about him spread throughout all Syria, you think? And they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them all. So you think he's maybe gathering a crowd? Absolutely. So notice the next verse, 25. And large crowds, you think, followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Now, notice immediately chapter 5. And remember in a Greek text, there's no chapter breaks. There's no verse delineation. It's just a, a stream of writing. So you got these large crowds. They're following him from Galilee, Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, beyond the Jordan. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, what crowds? Do you think that perhaps it's these large crowds? Well, contextually, there's no other thought to have than that. And so when Jesus saw those crowds, those large crowds, he went up on the mountain, hence the sermon that's on this mount. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and began teach, to teach them and say. So here at the, in chapter 5, verse 2, we have the beginning of this great sermon on the mount, right? Right? And so it's without question that Jesus' preaching of the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel, the need of repentance to have entrance into the kingdom, was that which preceded this amazing, beautiful message, this great sermon that we think of as the Sermon on the Mount. In other words, this is an expression of what Jesus taught when he was preaching people regarding the gospel of the kingdom. And it seems to me that he's also teaching in this sermon, what it's going to look like for those who have actually genuinely repented. What genuine repentance will look like. And then from chapters 5 through 7, Jesus then proceeds to, sh to show this amazing impact of God's grace in the life of those who have chosen to follow him. That's what this great sermon gives us insight on. And again, as we saw, repentance is a change of one's life. The change of one's life as a result of a change of mind and attitude with regard to sin and righteousness, which is why, which is why it would seem that um, the Beatitudes is a perfectly and beautifully reflection, again, of what I'm saying, genuine repentance does and looks like in the life of those desiring entrance into the kingdom. Because when we see there in the Beatitudes, we have bookends, don't we? From verse 2 all the way to verse 10. 
blessed are these, blessed, blessed. And in verse 2 it says, for, though, for theirs is what? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We see that in verse 2. Let me get there real fast. Let me go backwards here. 5-2. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What was Jesus preaching? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's preaching the gospel of the kingdom. So those who want entrance into the kingdom need to repent. And so we see here, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is what? It's the kingdom. One of the outworking realities, the work of grace in someone's life is that they recognize that they're poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom. They will gain entrance. And then you go all the way through the Beatitudes, you get to verse 10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So again, all of these Beatitudes are indicative of individuals who have repented because repentance is required to get into the kingdom. And then this shows the inner attitudes that come as a result of repentance. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We're still dealing about entrance into his kingdom and those who have gained access. You see the, the beautiful life change that comes as a result of genuine repentance. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These, these inner attitudes become what might, you might think of as the normal, the natural practice of one's life as a result of desiring to follow Jesus all the way to the end of one's life, all the way to the point of glorification in being face-to-face. There, they will be those, as we saw last week, who will, who will persevere in their faith. Those who will make it a practice because it's just a normal, natural course of life, a, a natural thing to bear fruit that's in keeping with repentance, of bearing fruit that's God-honoring. And as such, and I walked through this last week, but as such, we, those who have repented, will be those who are poor in spirit. We will mourn over sin we, we become more gentle in life. We, we have a, an actual hunger and thirst for righteousness. We become peacemakers. We're pure in heart. We're merciful. And we will ultimately be subject at some point to persecution if we live long enough here in America and it reaches our shores or... The Antichrist shows up and all that stuff begins, but to be persecuted and insulted for standing for righteousness. No, oh, by the way, you can still be persecuted and insulted and stand for standing for righteousness in your workplace today. Don't be mistaken by that statement. Oh, by the way, hey guys, I'm using a new feature where I just blacked out my screen, so it's nothing with you back there. I saw you're trying to reboot the system. I should have warned you in advance. I'm sorry. So you can just, yeah, they're back there going, oh man, they're, they're sweating back there trying to figure out why the, the TVs went black. My bad. I'm sorry. I failed you. Won't happen again. See, watch this. If I go like this and I touch this little button, it, it comes right back. I just discovered this last night. It's a, you know when you find new features, you've got to start using them, right? I mean, it's part of growing in your use of technology if you don't start using new features. Yeah, so here we go. Watch. It's like that. Reminds me of like, you know, Frodo when he had the ring, he just, he just puts the ring on. He just, he just, that's what happens. He's like, there he is, and then he's not. I should have told you. I'm sorry. So after... Jesus walking through repentance is how you get into the kingdom. And oh, those who, who belong in the kingdom, their, their inner attitudes are going to be progressively looking like this. This is the way they're going to be purposefully 
um, being developed into the image of Jesus Christ, but he didn't stop there. He also continued in and he showed what true obedience to his lordship is going to look like for those who are in his kingdom, under his authority, under his new covenant. And Jesus as the new lawgiver under that new covenant, he gives laws. And so in this, he would say things like, you heard it was said this, but I say to you this, right? And so in that process, Jesus says, oh, and this is kind of like, you know, after the inner attitudes, these become more progressively in you. Well, there's also going to be outward expressions in your life that are going to change too. He said that you're going to start looking more like the salt of the earth and, and the light of the world. Um, he, he says, for those who have truly repented and that you start seeing these beautiful inner qualities being transformed in your life, you're, you're not going to be hating brother or sister, but instead purposefully seeking reconciliation. Because when the Spirit of God imbibes us, he, he comes for good and he trains us on how to live human flourishing lives to the glory of God's name. So that we can live in a manner that's worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he starts developing this within us. And so we're going to be those who are going to honor and hold marriage in high esteem. We're not going to lightly treat marriage as something that's a, a, of man's idea, but it's, a, it's God's idea. Um, we're going to be willing to go the extra mile with people when needed. We're going to be loving of enemies and pray for those who mistreat us. We're going to be becoming more anxious for nothing. Have you noticed how it's easy to be anxious for everything? When the Spirit of God is in our hearts and Jesus is lordship over our lives, we will be living and becoming more anxious for nothing with your life, what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear, or anything, really. You're going to learn to pray and leave that at the throne of his grace. And we're going to be rightly those that treat other people the way that we want to be treated ourselves. Amen? Jesus, in his kindness, shows here what that narrow path that we must come is going to look like in following after him through his preaching of the gospel of the kingdom. And he shows us unequivocally what good fruit in the lives of those who are following him looks like. And he gives general statements of that. These can have expressions in many, many different outlets and ways in our lives. But he shows us unequivocally what practicing righteousness is going to look like in the life of those who truly want to follow him. They truly want to be in his kingdom. And so repentance isn't a big deal at all. We recognize that we've sinned against the holiness of God and we want to follow after that man. It really is that simple. And as such, people whose lives reflect that outward fruit, uh, it becomes a consistent way of their lives. It would be inherent and obvious that those would also be those who are inheriting the kingdom of heaven. Now, I've got a, a quote here that I want to share with you from Arthur Pink. Uh, he wrote this in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount in 1950 was when it was first published. Okay, 1950. Now, many of you are so young, you can't remember what life might have been like in 1950, like me. However, I've heard that it was this golden era of sorts, right before the 60s, which then everything went to hell in a handbasket. However, listen to what Arthur Pink was saying about the Sermon on the Mount and its application within the church in 1950. And try to imagine, if you will, if he were alive and writing today, what he might have, how he might have written this today. Watch this. Uh-oh. Uh, that's not Arthur Pink. So I just realized that I, I, 
I failed to put my Arthur Pink quote into my, my uh, PowerPoints here. I can, I can kind of see that very clearly. So just listen. I can read, though. Watch this. Never were there so many millions of nominal Christians on earth. Now, just a quick, de quick definition, nominal, just so that we're all on the same page with nominal. When he says nominal Christians, nominal simply means in name only. It's not a, it's not a good uh, prefix that you would want it to, to have added to Christian if, if it was being said of you, if you truly believe you're following Christ. There were never so many millions of nominal Christians on earth as there are today. And never was there such a small percentage of real ones. Not since before the days of Luther and Calvin, when the Great Reformation affected such a grand change for the better, has Christendom been so crowded with those who have, quote, a form of godliness, end quote, but who are strangers to its transforming power. We seriously doubt whether there has ever been a time in history of the Christian era when there were such multitudes of deceived souls within the churches who verily believe that all is well with their souls when in fact the wrath of God abideth on them. And we know of no single thing better calculated to undeceive them than a full and faithful exposition of these closing verses of our Lord's Sermon on the Mount. And the reason this is true is due to the fact that we have dissected that word, that beautiful word, repentance. We've removed everything from its intended meaning that implies and requires the change of one's life in connection with one's conversion. And all we have left is a small strain of truth that repentance simply means to change one's mind. And as such, uh, the new definition looks something like this. Metanoia, to change one's thought, mind, to change one's mind with regard to, insert, hence italics, my own words, who you believe Jesus to be. I have had so many people tell me that this is what metanoia, what repentance actually means. It's just to change your mind with regard to who you believe Jesus to be. That's it. That's a new definition according to easy believism gospel that permeates most churches today. And as we began to see last week, Jesus doesn't do this. When Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom after telling them of their need of repentance, the original meaning of the word, he showed those listening what that transformed life looked like so there would be no confusion as to what he was speaking of at all. He made it utterly clear that if they choose to repent, that both inwardly and outwardly, they would become new creatures to the glory of God. I think today that 
the majority of Christendom probably falls into this category. And you might say, but pastor, I've met a lot of people that might think this way, but they seem absolutely sincere in their belief. When they say, I believe Jesus, I I changed my mind as to who I believe Jesus was. I'm going to say, I'm not questioning the sincerity of that. But again, if we're looking for the test that Jesus leaves with regard to what it takes for entrance into his kingdom, I'm going to say that they're sincerely wrong because that's not the test that Jesus levies out there. And in my opinion, the gospel according to Jesus is far more imp- has far more import, it should have far more import than anybody else's so-called definitions of repentance and what that then must look like making the gospel easy, making it easy to follow Jesus, making it easy to make Jesus an appendage onto one's life. Jesus never did that. The apostles, in their preaching, they never did that. And so then I'll have somebody, they'll go and they'll grab a verse over here where it says, just just believe, and they'll throw in a verse that says, just believe, and I'm going to say, that's right. And so you take that verse with this preaching of Jesus and you meld it together, they had better believe because belief and repentance somehow are almost like two sides of the same coin. So one little verse or five little verses over here that just say believe is, is not an excuse to, to do this to all of Jesus' preaching on the Sermon on the Mount and what it looks like when you actually repent. You bring those beautiful truths together. And you say, yes, when you believe, there's other passages in Scripture that kind of fill out and, and give us the, the holistic picture of what it means, of what repentance, belief, and how these things are very similar, actually. Different word, pistis, believe, metanoia, repent. But conceptually, it's like two sides of the same coin. Are you following me? Notice how Jesus shows us this. Look at verse 22. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Here in verse 22, Jesus takes us to the final judgment day of the lost. And that needs to be noted. Many will say to me on that day, well, what day is this? Jesus here is taking us to the final judgment day of the lost who having traversed the broad way are now facing the broad gate which leads to eternal separation from God forever. This judgment day is referred to as the great white throne judgment in Revelation chapter 20. Notice, then I saw a great white throne and him who sits upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. Then I saw the dead, the great, and the small standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their beliefs. Now, according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. 
And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So this day of judgment is the time at which all the unbelieving will be summoned from Hades or hell and will all pass before the throne of God and him who sits upon it. And so it's here that many, this many that Jesus speaks of, notice right here, many will say to me on that day. So all of those unbelievers who have been summoned from Hades and hell, many of whom were probably once nominal believers who were not genuine, having, they've probably already spent centuries in hell, will appear before Christ for their final judgment prior to, be thrown, prior to being thrown into the lake of fire. And it's here where all such people will be judged by their deeds. And it's here where Jesus, in our Matthew text, indicates that there will be many who will attempt to make one last plea for mercy. They will remind Jesus as to why they should be considered worthy of entrance into his kingdom instead of being thrown forever into the lake of fire. And it's on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles. And sadly, we see that they're still wrongly believing that a works-based merit system was how one earned entrance into Jesus' kingdom. Not one of them started off with, Lord, we repented of our sins before you and we followed hard after you. Not one of them. They didn't get it. They clearly overlooked their need of genuine repentance from sin, from which such good deeds are, are actually the, the outworking of a new heart. Otherwise, these individuals, believing wrongly that these good deeds would gain them entrance into the kingdom, they fail to realize that these good deeds were laced with all sorts of selfish motives all along the way. The fact that they were to some degree diligent, it might seem, in practicing religious work is clearly not a sufficient test to the genuineness of one's confession of faith in Jesus as Savior. And we would do well, likewise, not to fall into such a delusion. To conclude wrongly that we had genuine faith because of our religious activity. Again, this is why it's imperative that we understand Jesus' preaching on the gospel of the kingdom. Salvation is at stake. That genuine repentance will first result in the transformation of the inner life these are things that we must know and preach. A new heart given by God to those who truly repent of sin from which the outward life of obedience to Jesus is the fruit. It's, the, it's that which follows. The seed gets planted, it dies, and then it comes to life and it bears fruit. You see, while their words were indeed good religious words and deeds, uh, which perhaps would have seemed sufficient to them while living their lives on earth. Jesus shows us 
in this next verse that they were woefully wrong. Notice verse 23, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So while they clearly had Jesus' name on their lips, rebellion to the lordship of Christ actually resided in their hearts. And the habitual practice of their lives was not the momentary fleeting religious deeds, but was instead a life lived for self-interest or self-gratification or self-promotion or self-love or self-interest, which on many occasions includes service to others, which made self feel really good about oneself, etc., etc., etc. Listen to how the Apostle Paul said, in, in essence, the same thing Jesus said. To Titus in 1.16, they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him. Being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. And then John the Apostle in 1 John, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Now think about this. In the Great Commission, go make disciples. The one thing we're told after baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, what does it say? And teach them to obey all that I've commanded. Jesus is saying, when you find people who want to follow after me, you teach them how to obey. And that's exactly what Paul seems to be repeating after Jesus. John seems to be repeating after Jesus. The one who does not keep his commandments is a liar. The truth's not in him. Verse 5, but whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. In other words, those who showed up before Jesus on that day of judgment, those with such a robust list of works done in his name, the Beatitudes didn't become their inner reality. They were not truly poor in spirit, maybe fleeting here or a little bit there when needed on a Sunday or when they were performing many miracles in his name. They weren't gentle. They didn't become very merciful. Uh, they didn't have a lasting hunger and thirst for righteousness. Oh, I did that a long time ago, but you know, I'm just kind of falling out. Just, I, I they weren't peacemakers. Didn't become the salt of the earth that lie of the world. They did hate brother and sister, and they did not purposefully seek reconciliation did not honor and hold marriage in high esteem, were not people of integrity keeping their word, yes being yes and no being no. They did pray to be noticed by man. And they did not store up for themselves treasures in heaven, but instead treasures on earth, deluding themselves, believing it was possible to serve both God and money. They did not seek first his kingdom and his righteousness above all things. They did not treat people the way they themselves would want to be treated. And it's for this reason that Jesus can say what he says here at the end of verse 23. You who practice lawlessness. 
Now listen, if you and I were to see people doing these kinds of religious activities while on earth in Jesus' name, like prophesying in his name or casting out demons or performing many miracles, we would probably assume that they were indeed in the faith, right? They showed up to church somewhat occasionally regularly. They did the potlucks. They went and served in the community. They did things maybe not quite like performing many miracles, but we, we would probably assume that they were in the faith. But Jesus has the capacity to see through all of the noise and activity, doesn't he? Jesus sees and knows the heart. Jesus knows if that repentance, a total change of thought and attitude, was what was at stake whenever you recognized that you were undone before God and you had sinned against the holiness of God, and you needed to repent of that and turn to follow Jesus. And then he, from above, gives you a new heart. Jesus knows these things. Jesus is saying to this person here, listen, all this stuff you're saying seems grand, but I never knew you. There was never a master-servant relationship ever. You tacked me on when it was convenient for you, and you left me behind when it wasn't. And in reality, there are a few passages in all the word of God which are more solemn than Matthew 7, 21 through 23 and which are more calculated to induce the hearer of the gospel of the kingdom as preached by Jesus to then make an honest assessment of their own heart and soul. And to use the word of God as a mirror by which that assessment is then made. Not their own concepts of what they think how God would probably be if they were God. They look into the mirror of Scripture, perhaps, and I would say rightly using this, this great Sermon on the Mount here as a means by which evaluating their life in comparison to Jesus' teaching and say, you know, a long time ago, I walked an aisle and said a prayer. That's beautiful. How about 10 years later? Do you look more like these beautiful inner qualities of the Beatitudes and is your life looking more like and transformed on the outside by these commands of Christ? If the answer is no, then you're perhaps just doing religious things. Peter, we're not, we don't have time to go to Peter. Peter would say, yeah, if you don't see the increasing work of God, the Spirit in your life, you need to check your spiritual pulse to make, certain that, uh, to make all the more certain of his choosing and calling you brethren. Can I see the inner and outer work of the Holy Spirit transforming my life? Not my neighbors, not my friends, not my wife, my husband, my person. Mine. Me. Do I see the inner and outer work of the Holy Spirit alive in me, transforming me from one level of Christ-likeness to another, to the praise and glory of God alone? And do others see these signs of the genuine believer at work in my life, inner and outer? in the inner man and in the outer man. Because in this passage, Jesus makes it clear that there will be many, many individuals who will be so self-deceived by outward forms of righteousness that resembles Christianity yet that denies the very power thereof, who are ultimately denounced by Christ at that last judgment on that day as those who practice lawlessness just prior to be thrown into the lake fire. 
Remember when Jesus, having instructed all those listening to his preaching, he said, enter through the narrow gate. Enter through the narrow gate. But then he also warned them that there would be few who would find that narrow gate. And he told them all to beware of false teachers, false prophets, who would peddle a version of the gospel of the kingdom that was different than his that undoubtedly would be easier than his, that would lower the standard of God-wrought holiness in the life of those claiming to have repented and to be followers of Christ. He, he said that there, a, a time would come when multitudes of so-called Christians would claim that one's life, one's fruit, had no bearing on the genuineness of one's confession to following Jesus. And as such, they would accumulate teachers for themselves who would tickle their ears, telling them things that they wanted to hear that were easy. Accommodated their flesh. And here he shows how some will even be self-deceived into thinking they've found it. And they kept up with religious activity. It was almost like a, like a, a checklist of religious activities that I do, and that's, I'm, I'm, keeping, I'm, I'm keeping pace but it's devoid of a personal relationship and commitment to the Lord Jesus as evidenced by the genuine fruit of their lives. Remember, Jesus put it very plainly, bad trees bear bad fruit. Good trees will bear good fruit. Remember last week the warning that we had from Jude 3 and 4 uh, that there will be false prophets who will work to convince people that they could claim the grace of God while at the same time live sinful lives of wanton pleasure and it says they turn the grace of God into licentiousness beware friends we need to allow God's amazing grace to complete his good work in us amen we need to daily get up and recognize a need for daily submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ we need to become familiar with the beatitudes the inner qualities of that God is working in us to conform us more into the image of Jesus Christ as a, as a result of the imputation of righteousness that comes from above a new heart that comes by means of the new covenant and we need to ask God deliver us from the evil one deliver us from temptation and then go live fruitful lives to the glory of God. We hold marriage in high esteem. The culture denigrates marriage. We stand firm that it's between one man and one woman and we don't budge out of some pretend form of kindness. How could it be kindness when on the last day they're going to be thrown forever into the lake of fire and we just predicated that by going along with it to make them feel good for a short little time on earth? The gospel is, the, is that which is the power of God unto salvation. Whom else are they going to see and hear the gospel from if it's not God's children? They're probably not going to don the, the doors of a church. That's why the church gathers on the Lord's Day and we get strength together from God's word on the Lord's Day. But then we scatter and we do the work of the evangelist. In closing, let me just remind us from some of Paul's words just how amazing God's grace truly is. A song that we probably all know, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Well, you first have to recognize you're a wretch. 
You have a change of mind with regard to sin and righteousness. If you never understand that you're a wretch, that you're a sinner, and you've sinned against the holiness of God, how can you truly repent? The way Jesus is demanding repentance. The Apostle Paul lays out grace in the most fullest way in all of the scriptures and any of the epistles when he writes to Titus. Notice verse 11 and 12. He said, the grace of God has appeared, and notice, bringing salvation to all men. And we say, amen. We stand in grace. Grace appeared in the person of Jesus Christ. It brings salvation to all people. And notice what grace does. Grace instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. So if we're people who stand in grace, grace is then instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live instead sensibly and righteously and godly in the present age. Yet some people instead want to turn grace on its head and say the reason they don't have to do these things is precisely because of God's grace. And they wrongly understand what God's grace does in the life of those who have been truly saved because certain teachers crept in and turned grace into licentiousness by altering the meaning of the word repentance to only reflect the change of mind. Again, having a confession in a form of godliness but not denying its power. Truly little to no interest or thought given to the lordship of Jesus Christ over their lives. Look at verse 13. This is also what's so amazing about grace and what it does in the lives of those following Christ. Grace instructs us to be looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm saved by grace. Jesus appeared. It's all about grace. What's all this work stuff you keep talking about, Pastor? Well, grace brings with it an instruction. The Holy Spirit fills us and it becomes a means of grace, of work within our life, and it instructs us. God is at work in you to willing to work for his good pleasure, Ephesians 2.13. And that's why we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, because it's a live, living relationship that we have with him. And it also instructs us to be looking for our blessed hope, the coming of Christ for his church. This is how grace instructs our hearts. And this is why we stand in it. And then in verse 14, we see the power of grace given in the work and the person of Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Grace that saves sinners is grace that redeems sinners from every lawless deed. Grace that saves sinners is grace that purifies a people for God's own possession. Grace that saves sinners is a grace that makes God's people zealous for good deeds. You see how this is kind of working out? It seems to me a lot of times nominal Christianity wants to carry grace around like Linus carried his blankie. We just kind of carry it around everywhere we go. And it becomes, it becomes our, our blanket that covers basically everything we do wrong. All, all the sinning that we do, we go out and we live from Sunday when we leave church until we come back to the next religious activity and we live just like the world. Yeah, but grace, grace covers me. 
I've got God's grace. And we wrongly make an understanding and we turn grace into something that it was never intended to be into some form of licentiousness like false teachers and prophets will. Instead, grace is that which instructs us toward the, toward the lordship of Jesus Christ in all things. That's what saving grace actually does. And it's for this reason, Paul told Timothy in verse 15, these things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Paul tells the pastor here, you preach this grace message with all authority, and you may be a little bit young, Titus, but you don't let anybody disregard you. You stand firm in the faith. This is the most comprehensive teaching on grace in God's word. Find, somewhere, find it somewhere else, let me know. I'd love to see it. But this is the most comprehensive teaching on grace, on what it does in the life of God's children, making us zealous for good deeds, and all of that to the glory of God. It's not so that we pat ourselves on the back and we can be seen by people praying to the contrary of that. It's all for the glory of God and God alone. That's how truly amazing grace is. And this is what it looks like being God's workmanship. Ephesians 2.10. This is what it looks like. In church, we seriously need to let the gospel according to Jesus sink into our souls. Because the last illustration that Jesus gives us to validate this truth, that it's the narrow way that you must come, that all people ultimately will be distinguished by their lives, their fruit, their deeds, that entrance into his kingdom is through a, the passage of a small gate, which is Christ himself, will be granted to those not with the right confession upon their lips, but to those with the right confession upon their lips and a life that demonstrates the power of the gospel of grace. Notice how Jesus drives this home in his last illustration. In verse 24, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house. This house is his life. And yet it did not fall for it had been founded upon a rock. Everyone, verse 26, who hears these words what do you think when it says, here's these words? Jesus just preached an entire sermon. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, who just heard the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them, does not act on them, will be like a foolish man who built his house, his life, on the sand, the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. And as we saw in the book of Revelation, he said, depart from me. Well, he said, depart from me, and he says there in the book of Revelation that they are thrown forever and ever and ever from the presence of Christ for the last time into the lake of fire forever and ever. This, my friends is what the gospel of Jesus looks like. This is the gospel we must preach. If we go out and we preach a half-baked gospel that thinly narrows it down to just a sliver of truth within the message and 
People flock to it with all great sincerity, but they don't even understand what repentance means, etc. And they haven't considered the cost of what it's going to look like to follow Jesus. But yet 30 years later in their life, they're just still clinging to some profession from 30 years ago. Their life has looked like they've already been in hell for a century. But they cling to some profession they made 30 years ago. And they know for certain, because the pastor said, once saved, always saved. And that is a true doctrine. The bad thing was is that they weren't actually saved because they didn't actually repent. They didn't even know what repentance meant. They just thought in a thin little sliver that maybe I'm just supposed to change my mind about who Jesus is. And that's it. And that's a part of the it, but that ain't the whole it. And so Jesus in his preaching all throughout the Gospels lets people know that following hard after me is the way, it's the narrow gate that you must come to, and that's doing the will of the Father. I don't want one person to leave this morning without giving consideration of these truths, this gospel of the kingdom, to their own souls. To not leave until you're at peace with God. That this is what you have done. I don't want anyone here to be a part of that many on that day. Believers will face a different judgment, not for sin, but for deeds done in the body, rewards gained, etc. Much better place to be. If you've yet to place your faith in Jesus Christ and make him Lord over your lives, do that today, friends. If you need, I, I will be right here. I'll be, don't leave without finding me or without finding Brother Royce, Pastor Matt. You come find us. We, we would love to talk to you about what it looks like to repent and follow hard after Jesus. Let's pray.